Welcome to Just Plain Tim, a podcast where we discuss life, faith, family, the past, the present, the future, and everything in between. Now, here's your host, Tim Parrish. You ever get that feeling that something is about to happen? Even if you're not exactly sure what, you just kind of have that sensation. Maybe it's a Maybe it's the, the hair on the back of your neck stands up or, or you just kind of have, you know, your spidey senses get to tingling or, or, or whatever it might be that there's just some, some feeling, some quickening of the pulse, some, something that tells you that something is about to happen. And you're not sure exactly what it's going to be, but, but that fight or flight response has kind of been triggered and, and the adrenaline is surging already because you, you, just, you just have that feeling, right, that something is about to happen. But based on kind of how you view the world and, and what your world looks like may determine whether that's a positive sensation or a, or a negative one. I have known people for whom the sky is always falling and something is indeed about to happen. They, they believe that something is just around the corner, but that something is always negative or, or bad or, or wrong. It, it's, a, it's a constant sensation that causes people to not be able to, to live with any kind of joy in the present because something bad is always just about to happen. And then maybe there are those people that I've also known who, who are the eternal optimist. You know, the glass is always half full. And, and yes, something's about to happen. But no matter how good it is right now, something better is always coming. Something, something good's always on the horizon. There's always light at the end of the tunnel. And it's never a speeding locomotive. And I suspect most of us probably tend to fall somewhere in between. Maybe sometimes our anticipation of what's next is good, and sometimes it's it's a little bit fearful. Well, I want to spend the next several episodes of our podcast together uh, thinking through a series of sermons that I preached uh, about what's next. In fact, I, I just kind of started it because I was looking for uh, the answer to that very question. This particular series of, of teaching uh, started uh, in the spring of 2020 when the pandemic was a pretty fresh thing for us. We were already meeting uh, in houses instead of meeting at the church building. And, and so uh, I was just constant, like week to week, trying to figure out what's next and, and what's everything going to look like. And, and so I kind of sat down one day and tried to think about what was next as far as what I was going to teach and, and what kind of teaching would take us through whatever the the season of quarantine and, and house church was going to look like? Well, it, it seemed reasonable if I was asking the question, what's next? So were lots of other people. And so uh, we began in a time period. In fact, this first episode uh, starts right after the death of Jesus and takes a look at two of his uh, followers in specific and what they did and, and how, they, how they looked at the question of what's next and responded very, very differently. Now, over the next several episodes, we're also going to spend time uh, then going from that moment, walking through the book of Acts. Uh, it, it just seemed logical. If we're going to be talking about Jesus and, and uh, coming out of the Easter season, we were talking about his death and his burial and his resurrection, and then continually asking the question, what's next? So then what's next? And the book of Acts kind of provided that natural outline for us. So I'm I'm thankful that you're here today. I'm so thankful that you decided to, to kind of come along on this journey with me uh, in this new venture. 
And uh, hopefully this first lesson will be a good jumping off point for you uh, to think with me about what's next when it comes to following Jesus. What's next? Well, I think that's a question that's been asked by people for generations. In fact, I suspect that those followers of Jesus who were there during the time of the resurrection and the days that followed probably asked themselves quite often, what's next for us? You see, they had been aware of Jesus perhaps for quite some time and at least for the past three years. Some of their lives had revolved around everything Jesus did, everything Jesus said. Going where Jesus went, listening to the things that Jesus taught, watching the miraculous things, the amazing things that Jesus did. Even paying attention to the details like how he handled himself at the table and, and what he did when he was tired or angry. And then suddenly, even though he'd been warning them, suddenly it all stopped. Jesus was arrested, he was taken and put on a cross, and then he was buried. And they wondered, I'm sure, what's next? Jesus is gone, what's next? And then Jesus was raised. And, and life took the place of death, and Jesus is back. And yet, is he back? Because he's with us right now, but he's still talking about going away. We're not sure what that's going to look like. We, we don't think he's going back to the cross. He, he's alive again after that, but what's next for us and Jesus? We know that a little bit over a month is going to pass by until the time that, that Jesus actually ascends. They watch him rise back up into the sky and disappear. What's next? You know it was the question that was on their mind. But today I want us to think about the question of what's next, uh, largely from the viewpoint of two of Jesus' followers. Their lives took very different turns after the death of Jesus, and perhaps they reflect something of how we feel, not just in a moment of waiting for the coronavirus to be eradicated, but maybe in life in general, as we think about where we are and, and what we've done up to this point, maybe we just, maybe we just wonder what life is going to look like and, and we'll see something of how they handled things and maybe find some application to our own lives. Judas is a guy who had been a part of the Twelve from the very beginning. He'd always been there. He was the treasurer, it seems, of the group, which is interesting because, you know, there was a tax collector, a guy named Matthew, Levi, also in the Twelve. And in some ways, it seems like that's the guy who would have handled the money, and yet maybe he's the last one anybody wanted handling their, uh, their small, meager treasury. But over time, it seems that that treasury had come to mean a little bit more to Judas than it should have. He was pilfering the money bags. In fact, we read at one point, he was taking a little bit out and, and using it for himself, putting it in his own pocket. So in some ways, maybe it is only logical that he is the one who was tempted with money to betray Jesus and to do that with the symbol of love and friendship, a kiss. He met Jesus there in the garden. I don't imagine that that bag of money he was carrying felt very different until, until he watched him lead Jesus away. Then I think it probably got very heavy. It, it was heavy 
emotionally, it was heavy spiritually. And the Bible tells us that what happened next with Judas is not good. He was so overcome and overwhelmed watching Jesus as he was led away, watching Jesus as he was killed, that he tried to make amends for it in some small way by giving the money back. In fact, over in Matthew chapter 27, we read about this moment. Now when the morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. And then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What's that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. What's next? Well, for Judas, he couldn't imagine that next involved forgiveness. He couldn't imagine that next involved purpose, that next involved hope, that next could involve a fresh start or a place in the kingdom and the mission of Jesus. I'm sure he felt like he had failed Jesus, that he had failed God, that he had failed the others among the twelve, that he had failed the entire mission, that, that he was a failure as a human being. And Judas let that one event, momentous though it was, convince him that nothing was worth living for after that. He could not imagine that there was a next with meaning. Judas went out and did the only thing he knew to do. He took his own life. I often wonder, what would it have been like for Judas if he had allowed himself to stay around just a few more days? If he had seen the resurrected Jesus? I know I'm guessing and, and reading in between the lines, but I have to think that based on the other things we see from Jesus, Jesus would have embraced Judas. Jesus would have held Jesus, Judas close to himself. He would have forgiven him. He would have spoken grace and mercy into his broken heart. He would have dealt with the remorse and the guilt by showing Judas that in fact his death on the cross had atoned for sins just like that. Can you imagine what a powerful testimony it would have been for Judas to have been able to, to go back out into the world and tell his story? The story of the one who betrayed Jesus with a kiss to the king and yet who found forgiveness from the Father. Can you imagine what it would have been like if, if Judas could have preached to skeptical people who wondered what Jesus was all about and he could have shown them the very definition of love. Thomas doubted. You know, Thomas needed to, to touch Jesus 
to believe that he really was raised from the dead? Judas might have taken a lot of convincing, but I have to think that story could have been told so much differently if when he asked the question, what's next? The answer had been Jesus. Well, if you've listened this far, undoubtedly you have heard uh, some strange sounds. Maybe you've looked around to see if the wind really was blowing or if there was a bird sitting somewhere near you. Uh, This particular lesson is one that I filmed uh, on location at Maple Lake. Perhaps you've uh, been there. It's over in the edge of Natchez Trace State Park. And it's one of those WPA lakes that uh, both of my grandfathers participated in uh, building. And uh, one of those projects that put a lot of men back to work when there was no work. Uh, It's a lake that I enjoyed fishing in with my dad and my mom, my brother when I was a kid. And uh, one that... I like to go back to and visit sometimes when I need a little bit of quietness and and some solitude. Usually it's not really crowded. Some days if the wind is not blowing, the water is just as smooth as glass and and it's a gorgeous place to stop and and think and reflect. Uh, Maybe that was why it was a good spot for me to be to think about what's next and to think about what the spiritual implications are of that in my life. Well, again, thanks for being with us uh, this far in the broadcast. Let's go back and, uh, and pick back up with part two of that lesson, What's Next? You know, it's really beautiful out here at Maple Lake. When you look around and you see the beauty of this place, it reminds you of the creative hand of God. And it also reminds you of the creative hand of people. These lakes throughout Natchez Trace were built by the hardworking men of this area who didn't have much else to do. They didn't have jobs, they didn't have money, they didn't have resources, many of them. And the government put them to work and well, all these years later, we can look at this lake and see their handiwork. My grandfather fished here with my dad when my dad was a boy. When I was a boy, my dad brought me here to fish. My son has fished here as well. But I wanted to come stand beside this lake today because I think standing beside the lake is a good reminder of the other part of what's next. You see, as you read through the text of John's Gospel, John chapter 20 is the chapter that tells us the story of the resurrection. We mentioned in the earlier segment that Judas didn't live long enough to see the resurrection or to know about it. He was so overwhelmed with guilt, burdened by shame, that suicide seemed his only option. And I think of all the things that he missed because his what is next took that kind of turn. Judas is not the only person in our lives and our families that has experienced that kind of despondency, that kind of depression, that kind of pain and anguish. In fact, some of us have lived through losing family members in much the same way they had the same idea as Judas. When they, when they thought about what's next, they couldn't see any reason to go on. But standing here by the lake, it helps me to go back into the text of John chapter 21 to see what did happen next. The, the end of John is a very unusual story. It's one that, that seems almost out of joint, almost out of place. 
And yet, if we'll allow the text to speak to us, I think we can see a much different answer to the question, what's next? One that begins and ends with eyes on Jesus. If you have a, a Bible handy and you want to look there, we'll be putting the words on the screen for you also. But I'm going to begin reading in John chapter 21, verse number 1. And after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that'd be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll come with you. And they went out and got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. I think they defaulted to what was familiar. When they thought about what was next, they, they maybe thought they couldn't just go on like they'd been going on. Nothing was going back to normal, and so rather than go back to normal, they would go back to, well, to what life was like before they met Jesus. They were fishermen. It wasn't just a hobby. They didn't fish in tournaments or things like that. These are, these are fishermen whose families had fished, probably for generations, for a living. And if there was one thing they knew, if there was a, a comfortable familiarity in anything, it would have been in being by the lake. It would have been in mending their nets and putting them in the boat, going out and spending the hours of the evening tossing those nets, seeing what they could bring back up. They knew where to throw them. They knew how to pull them. They were experts. And this was comfortable. What's next? Well, I don't know if it's exactly how it played out, but it's almost as if Peter said, I'm going back to what I knew. I'm going back to the lake. I want you to notice also that even in making that decision, he was not alone. Others went with him. Peter was always a leader, even when he didn't think of himself that way, even when he wasn't making the greatest decisions. Now, I don't want to suggest to you that there was anything inherently wrong with Peter going fishing. But maybe Peter was running. Maybe Peter was trying to get away. and Maybe Peter didn't want to think about what was next. So the story says they fish all night. They don't catch any fish. So this is the next morning, verse 4. When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? They said, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they did, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of of fish. Now, this story is most unusual to me because Jesus is not a fisherman. They are. They're not the kind to take fishing advice from someone who doesn't know how to fish. In fact, that's a pretty common trait even today among those who fish and those who don't. Someone who's a fisherman isn't likely to take advice from somebody who's never put a hook in the water. They don't know who it is. It just says they knew it was a guy standing over there on the side. Maybe they're just desperate at this point. They're, they're wanting so badly to catch something, to catch anything, that they're willing to do anything that anybody suggested. 
Therefore, verse 7 says, the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish on it and bread. And Jesus said, Bring some of the fish that you've now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said, Come and have breakfast. Can you imagine this scene? Fishermen in a boat, tired from a night full of fishing. They knew how to fish. They knew where to fish. Disgusted because they hadn't caught anything. Some guy comes walking up and says, Hey, why don't you, why don't you try something different? Just throw the net on the other side. And yet it paid off. And maybe that was the thing that helped them know this was Jesus. I, I don't know. I, I read through this story, and, and there's nothing really to indicate exactly what made them know that, that it was Jesus, if it was just that this happened, if their eyes were suddenly opened, if they recognized him as the light was, was getting a little bit brighter, maybe that's what they saw and, and how they knew. I'm also interested in Peter jumping out of the boat. I don't know if Peter was trying to get to the, to the shore faster. I don't know if Peter was trying to have his own kind of Jonah moment where he, he was going away from Jesus. There's, there's not a lot. There's, oh, there's plenty of guesses and theories as to what he was doing that maybe he thought he could get there faster by swimming than he, and walking than he could by staying in the boat. Well, there's no way to know. Peter's not around to tell us today. Interesting, though, that he, he jumps out and they all come to shore where Jesus already has some fish. Now, nothing was said about him fishing, but he's already got some broiling over the fire for breakfast. He invites him to sit down and eat. And the scripture tells us what's next is that nobody would ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Well, I don't know what to make out of some of this. It's as, it's as if they recognized him, but they, they weren't 100% sure. You see, that's one of the mysterious things to me about this particular story. But let's get on into why I, I brought you to this text and why I'm standing on the lake shore to answer the question, what's next? So verse 15 says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, Tend my lambs. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so he said, Shepherd my sheep. Now he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Three times Jesus asked a simple question, a very profound question. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Do you really love me, Peter? Now, some of us have guessed over time that maybe
Three times. Three times Jesus asked the same question. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? I don't know for sure why he asked him three times. It's really easy to assume that he asked him three times about loving him because three times Peter had denied even knowing who Jesus was. I suspect that left him feeling a lot like Judas. That when he thought about what's next, it left him thinking, nothing, nothing with me and Jesus. Yes, Peter had an advantage because he had seen the risen Jesus. But we've already seen in this text, there's still a little bit of uncertainty about what that means and and what's next and if this is really Jesus. And now Jesus is just questioning him. Three times he's questioning whether or not Peter actually loves Jesus. And it seems by the end of that questioning that that Peter's getting a little bit put out with, with Jesus, a little exasperated by Jesus. But Jesus then tells Peter a little bit about what life is going to look like for him in the future, that that he's not going to be able to do all the things for himself he once did. But he finishes at the end of verse 19 by saying, follow me. The same words he used to call Peter and, and Judas, follow me. If you love me, follow me. I'm not finished with you yet. The mission is still the same. The work of God is still the same. The kingdom is still top priority. Follow me. Jesus looks at, we guess, John sitting there, and and he questions Jesus, well, what about him? Jesus said, listen, you got to stop worrying about anybody else except what I want from you. And what I want from you, Peter, is to follow me, same as I've always wanted from you. What's next? Follow me. What's next for somebody else? Don't worry about anybody else. What's next for you is follow me. Church, it's really hard right now in this uncertain time to know what's next, isn't it? It's even hard to know what kinds of things we need to be thinking about with regard to What's next for what? For, for church? What's next for worship? What's next for kingdom mission? I think Jesus' answer to us would be the same. When you wonder what's next, even after the most miserable failures of your life, when you wonder what's next, if you will look at me, if you will see me, you will see that I'm still here And I still believe in you, and I still have a place for you in the kingdom. And the simplest way to tell you what's next is follow me. Follow me. This morning, wherever you're watching from, whatever's going on in your life, however many times and ways you've been asking the question of what's next, whatever things you're wondering about, and what they're going to look like on the other side of this crisis. There is one thing that is the same now as it's ever been, and it's what does God want from me? What would Jesus say to me? If I've been a a spiritual superhero, or if I've thrown it all away, 
denied even knowing Jesus. What would he want from me? Same thing he'd want from Peter. Follow me. That is what's next. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Just Plain Tim podcast. A podcast about life, faith, family, the past, the present, the future, and everything in between. For your host, Tim Parrish, thanks for stopping by. We'll see you next time.